Entering free agency, the Seahawks had one of the healthiest salary cap situations in the NFL, but just a week and a half later, that's no longer necessarily the case. How can Seattle open up some extra cap space to make additional moves before the draft? I'm going to be breaking it down in this latest installment of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked on Seahawks, riding solo for our Thursday episode. Thanks, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And I wanted to give an extra special thanks to all of you that listen to our podcast regularly. We just eclipsed 2 million downloads since Rob Rang, Nick Lee, and I started hosting this podcast back in August 2019. We've also had the best month we've ever had hosting this podcast with over 110,000 downloads this month. And oh, by the way, we've still got a week until the calendar flips to April. It's been really exciting seeing the growth that we've had with our audio podcast as well as our video podcast on YouTube. And All of that credit goes to you, the listeners, for being willing to listen to us ramble on about the Seahawks 365 days a year, year year-round. Thank you. We greatly appreciate it. On this Thursday episode, got tons coming up. Going to be answering your questions in our weekly mailbag segment and taking a closer look at why the Seahawks suddenly have a difficult salary cap situation midway through free agency and what moves they might be able to make to open up a little bit additional space to add a few more players before the draft. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. Only a few hours after Rob and I recorded our Wednesday episode, the Seahawks added another defensive player to the fold in free agency. I've been practicing saying his name all day long. I'm going to go by Iggy, but I'm going to have to give it one shot here. Joel E.A. Booneyway, their new linebacker that they signed previously of the Chicago Bears. Again, I'm going to be calling him Iggy because that is an extremely difficult name to say. Eventually, I will get it down enough where I'm able to say it regularly, but I have not reached that point yet. And Iggy is an exciting addition to the Seahawks, even though this is a guy that has only played special teams for the most part in his four-year career. You go back and you look at his college career. He was a sub under 230 pound linebacker at Western Kentucky was drafted in the fourth round by the bears. So this is a guy that was a early day three selection ran a four, six at the combine had a 35 inch vertical also had a very respectable 7.063 cone time. So he can change directions. Well, you want as much speed and quickness as you can get at the linebacker position in the NFL today. And I think that was a big reason. Obviously the $20 million cap hit was the biggest reason, but I think declining athleticism was one of the other big reasons why Seattle moved on from Bobby Wagner. Iggy's going to provide some athleticism if he gets to play some defense. And I do think he's going to get that opportunity. And he even had a post on his Instagram recently that suggests, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out for whatever reason. You don't get that chance to play on defense. He wasn't able to earn that opportunity in his first four years in Chicago. But the Seahawks have the former Bears defensive coordinator, Sean Desai, on their coaching staff now as an associate head coach. And they had already brought in Artie Burns, who played corner for six games late in the season last year and played really well for Desai. 
he must see something in this young linebacker for him to want to bring him to Seattle with him. And the fact he's only 26 years old, I see some upside. I have to go back and watch a bit more film. He hasn't played a lot on defense, but he was able to make a pass deflection in a limited number of snaps a couple years ago. So that athleticism can be seen in coverage. You'd like to see a more extended snap count so that you had a little more of an idea what kind of player you're getting. But clearly, this is a player that Desai has been impressed with. He also had 19 tackles on special teams over the past four seasons. He did miss five tackles on special teams, according to Pro Football Focus. So maybe not the most efficient tackler, but very active, uses his athleticism on kick on, on kick and punt coverage. So I think this is a very intriguing addition, kind of one of those lower tier guys but it's a little different to what they've been doing. A lot of times they've been signing players like, say, Terrence Garvin, who were really good special teams players, but they were approaching 30 years old. Again, this is a player that's only 26. He hasn't had many opportunities to play on defense, and it feels like he may still be a player that's got some untapped potential, and Sean Desai sees that in him. I also look at Seattle's depth at linebacker without Bobby Wagner. Jordan Brooks had an all-pro vote last year. He is trending towards being an all-pro caliber player. He's already on his way there. But they have to figure out what they're going to do in Bobby Wagner's spot, that Mike linebacker position. Cody Barton played well the last two games last year. He may very well be your guy at that position. But we haven't had a chance to see him play more than a couple games at a time. And early in his career, he was playing Sam linebacker, which just was not a good fit for his skill set. He's not his best when he's setting the edge and he's having to defend the run off the edge and teams are taking advantage of that. But when he's able to play off the ball and he can use his athleticism, his former safety background, dropping back into coverage, his quickness to get up to the line of scrimmage, he's a very effective middle linebacker. I just don't know if he's your long-term answer there. We're going to find out down the line here, but behind him, you've got Ben Burkirvin and John Radigan both coming off ACL tears. So who knows what they're going to look like, how healthy they're going to be once OTAs and training camp gets here. And then you've got Tanner Muse and Aaron Doncor, who they got from the International Pathway Program last year. Those two guys have hardly played any regular season snaps, if any. So there are major question marks at linebacker right now. And so when you can bring in a player like EA Booneyway that has some athleticism, some untapped athletic ability on the football field, that you could maybe use on your defense, sideline to sideline speed, a solid tackler, has some potential in coverage. That is the kind of guy that you take a one-year flyer on. It's a little different than what Seattle's done. Like I said, they've typically been taking these one-year deals with older players, but this is kind of a high upside signing, and maybe he just ends up being a special teams guy, and if that's the case, that's totally fine. You need good core special teams players in Seattle. Some of their better ones, like Nick Ballore, are getting to be older players. You need to start finding some young guys that you can have ready to go there. And he's clearly been effective in that capacity already in his four years in the NFL. And so I don't know that they signed a starter. I do expect that he's going to get an opportunity to compete, especially with Sean Desai probably being the voice that caused him to be brought in by Seattle. He had to like what he saw from him during their time together in Chicago. So being able to bring him out here to the Pacific Northwest with his athleticism, his physical profile, he's now up to 235 pounds, which is right in the same wheelhouse as Cody Barton. Seattle likes their linebackers to be a little lighter and more athletic. So I think that this is a very intriguing fit. I'm interested to see how it plays out once we get to OTAs and into mini camps, because 
Again, I think this is a kid that's going to get a shot that maybe he didn't get in Chicago with Roquan Smith in front of him, some of the other linebackers that the Bears have had over the last four years. He's going to get that opportunity. Now, will he seize it? Who knows? Maybe Cody Barton with that extra competition, it's going to push him, and you're going to get the best out of Cody Barton going into the final year of his rookie contract. It's a win-win either way for the Seahawks, and I still think they could draft a linebacker next month as well to bolster that competition. But I really like this pickup, and I think it could be one that, you know, the floor is that you just got a solid special teams player. The ceiling, hey, you might have just got a guy that just simply needed an opportunity that has the tools to be a starter in the league, and what a find that would be at just a little over $1 million. We're talking close to a veteran minimum deal here. If it ends up panning out to be that, then that's going to be one of the more shrewd free agent moves that John Schneider has made. And again, I really like it because it's a young ascending player that they're spending their money on rather than a guy that's been in the league seven, eight years that might be trending in the wrong direction coming to Seattle. You're paying for potential future production here. So an intriguing signing nonetheless. Here in a moment, I'm going to get to your mailbag questions. We weren't able to have a mailbag last week because it was the first week of free agency and there was so much news. And you guys sent in a ton of questions. I'm looking forward to answering as many as I can coming up here in our next segment. It's that time of year again as college basketball's tournament is finally upon us. There are a ton of great games as we now have officially reached the Sweet 16, including the mighty St. Peter's Peacock still being alive with a 15 seed, just the third 15 seed to advance to the Sweet 16 all time. From all the latest odds, contests, player props, to make the right bets during March Madness, BetOnline.net is the number one source for all of your sports betting needs and info. BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sporting and wagering informational needs, including live betting, your favorite Vegas casino games, and of course, baseball is returning. Finally, head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. Bet online where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Thursday edition. I'm riding solo today. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And make sure to check out the Locked On NFL podcast. It's available streaming five days a week on YouTube, as well as on audio with all major platforms. Expert analysis from all all 32 teams on free agency coming up on the draft. Tons of great content, so make sure to check it out, whether you listen on audio or you stream on video. Again, five days a week on YouTube. That's the Locked On NFL podcast. It's time for our weekly mailbag segment. Again, I didn't get to you know, I didn't get to answer any questions last week. It was a really strange week with so much free agency news, officially having the Russell Wilson trade. Bobby Wagner rumors going on, just so much that I was not able to get to any mailbags last week. But this week, we got a little bit of a reprieve. Now that free agency is starting to slow down, we're into the second and third wave of free agency. So looking forward to tackling your questions. Let's get to it. Our first one coming from Josh Human tweets, should the Seahawks use a high draft pick to get Matt Coral, Kenny Pickett, or Malik Willis, or should they sign a veteran like Kaepernick or Geno and use a sixth or seventh rounder to pick up Skyler Thompson or Jack Cohn. They seem to have faith in luck, so I would go with the latter. You? Me personally, Josh, I, I like the first plan better. And I know that there are a lot of fans 
that are skeptical about this quarterback class. And a lot of it's been what the draft Knicks have been saying. And I'm not going to sit here and say that this is a great quarterback class because I do not believe that. But I also don't think, no offense to Geno Smith mentioning this, but I do not think this is the second coming of the 2013 draft class. That was kind of being thrown around for a while. The more film that I've watched on these top five quarterbacks, your players like Malik Willis and Desmond Ritter and Kenny Pickett, the more that I've watched film in these guys, I see some real potential if they land in the right spots. The biggest concern is pro readiness with this group. They're going to have to land places where there is a veteran that can play and they can learn. I don't think that this is a group that has a lot of players that you can just chuck into the lineup and throw them into the fire and expect to have success. Desmond Ritter might be the guy of that group that I think might be the most pro ready from his experience at Cincinnati. I just have been impressed with what I've seen from him, but uh, you know, this is a group, Kenny Pickett, you could throw in there as well. I like these quarterbacks enough that I could think, you know, I don't know that they're going to go number nine, but if Seattle traded down from number nine, I could see him picking a quarterback wherever they trade down to. I could see with pick 40 or 41. If one of those top five guys is there, if there's a quarterback, they really like that they could take one there. If you pick a player like Thompson or Cone late in the draft, I can't envision from what I've seen from them that those two guys, either one of them is going to be a franchise quarterback. You know, if they still had Russell Wilson here, those are the kind of flyers you take. It's just like Alex Magoo a few years ago, but I'm just not seeing it. I think you can go out and re-sign Geno Smith to compete against Locke and draft a quarterback fairly early in this draft and have all three of those guys and heck, throw Jacob Easton in there. It's all about competition. Pete Carroll's been saying that for years. So without Russell Wilson being there as your guaranteed starter, let them all compete. And I think that that would be the best bet for him. And ultimately you're hoping obviously that early pick is going to be the guy that is going to be your franchise quarterback moving forward. But again, a competition can bring out the best in all of them. So I vote bring in a veteran to compete against Locke and go get yourself a promising young quarterback fairly early in the draft. Next question from Chris Watkins. Hi, Corbin. Any chance, even remotely, that the Seahawks could bring back Bobby Wagner? So I don't want to break your heart, Chris. I don't want to break the hearts of all the 12s out there because as a reporter, I would love Bobby Wagner to come back. He is one of my favorite athletes that I have covered on my time on the beat for the Seahawks. He's real. He talks about non-football issues that I really enjoy. Former economics teacher, so I certainly enjoy when he starts diving into business-related stuff. And so I'm going to miss that a lot, just as much as his stellar play on the field. I'm going to miss the human being, but he's not coming back. I mean, the Seahawks, from what John Schneider said at his press conference a week ago, John Schneider basically said there was no other option that was on the table aside from releasing him. So he hinted at, well, we weren't even looking into possibilities of extending him or trying to figure out a way that we could make this work. They just cut him. And then for the player to come out and say that he didn't find out about it from the Seahawks that he was being released, and then he found out through somebody else, the way that was handled, both Schneider and Carroll apologized with the way that went down. But I mean, it just was a messy situation that you wanted to avoid with a player that is this iconic, that has a chance to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, I understand why they made the choice that they did because that was an untenable situation with that big of a cap hit for a player that was getting older that wasn't a great player necessarily anymore. Still a very good linebacker, but not the elite one that he was for the first nine plus seasons that he was here in Seattle. He is in decline. 
So that move made sense, especially if you're going to be trading Russell Wilson. Let's move on from a couple of our older players and let's start to shuffle back in some young guys and try to rebuild this thing some. And so I understood it. It just it stinks because obviously Bobby Wagner is such an icon and seeing it set up this way where they just released him outright like that and weren't able to figure something out. He's not going to be coming back. There's going to be another team, whether it's the Rams or the Chargers or the Raiders. I mean, somebody else is going to give him good money and he's going to sign there and fans should not be upset about that at all. The Seahawks released him and so he doesn't really owe anything to anybody. If he wants to go win a championship in LA, go for it. But he's not going to be playing in Seattle again, unfortunately. JL Sports tweets, Will Disley and DJ Reed have an identical salary cap hit on their new, new contracts in 2022. Do you think it was a mistake to prioritize retaining Disley over Reed, especially considering the Seahawks are again light at the outside cornerback position? I think that this is the one thing that I would debate about Seattle's free agency approach. And it's not that I don't like Will Disley because I think Disley is a very good player and he does a lot of things that aren't going to show up in the box score. In particular, he is one of the top three or four run blocking tight ends in football. I will stand by that. He is excellent in the trenches and we know how much Seattle wants to run the football. They enjoy running the ball. And now without Russell Wilson, they're going to do it even more. They're going to lean heavily on that ground game and they're going to be running a lot of 12 personnel with Shane Waldron. So I think that Will Disley has more value than most fans realize, but three years for 24 million, you look at the contract, it's very backloaded. And so that would be my one thing to refute this with is that you're going to be paying a lot of that money at the end of the contract. And he might not even be around at that point, depending how things play out. But there were other teams based on what I've been told that were offering similar contracts and they wanted to keep him. They viewed him as an integral part of that ground game. And so they made that choice. But again, that money could have been spent on DJ Reed. I don't know what their offer was to him in free agency. He told reporters that he found the offer from Seattle to be disrespectful. So I'm anticipating that it wasn't close to that three-year $33 million deal that the Jets gave him. And I think he's a very good player. I think he's an ascending corner that was going to be a good fit for running more man coverage in Seattle. So I was a bit surprised that they weren't more aggressive trying to re-sign him, but they viewed the tight end and the run game on offense. We need that run game going, so they needed to sign him. So we'll see. We'll see down the line if they made the right choice here. And Pete Carroll, he's found ways to bring in guys. I mean, DJ Reed has claimed off waivers and ended up turning into a really good starter. So Pete Carroll believes in his ability to coach up that position. So that would be their argument. We can bring somebody else and we think we can coach him up and not have to pay that kind of money. So we'll see what happens down the road. This question coming from BD Giddens. I hope you're fully recovered from your pro day. I didn't have to worry. I had no ice bath or anything. I was squatting the next morning. I, I just am slow. You know, I'm in good shape, but I'm just slow, unfortunately. Uh, with the move to a 3-4, does this open it up for Daryl Taylor to be the perfect stud defensive end linebacker that moves around like, say, a Chad Brown or a Kirkland did with Pittsburgh? I don't know that I would say it's going to be the exact same thing because that I don't know that Seattle's going to be running a pure 3-4. The Steelers, during the mid-90s, that's what they were. But you are going to see a lot of elements of that. But I certainly think that this fits Daryl Taylor's skill set the best. And I'm intrigued by Uchenna Nuosu in this system too. That's why he signed with Seattle. He was really excited about what they pitched to him with what the scheme was going to look like, where his skill set fit in. 
Both of these guys are super athletic and have the ability to play coverage. Nwosu had an interception last season, but they also both can be really good pass rushers. Daryl Taylor in what was really a pseudo-rookie season had six sacks. Nwosu, first year last year that he was a starter for the Chargers, had five sacks and 40 quarterback pressures. So these two guys are going to be able to turn up the heat on opposing quarterbacks, and you're still going to be able to have the flexibility to occasionally drop one or both of them into coverage. You could use them as defensive ends. They both have enough size that you can rush them when you are in pass rushing situations, running from your nine tech out wide. And so it gives you a ton of flexibility. So I don't know that I'd necessarily compare it to what Chad Brown and uh, Kirkland did with the Steelers necessarily. I think there's going to be some stark differences in terms of defense. This is going to be a hybrid 4-3 with 3-4 principles, leaning more heavily towards those 3-4 principles than what we've seen. But I think that it's really going to play to the skill set of both of those guys really well. And that's why you've seen the dramatic changes moving away from Dunlap, Hyder, and Mayoa to these two guys and Alton Robinson. And I think they'll draft somebody early that also can play that hybrid edge linebacker defensive end position. Bob Snow tweets, given the current status of Seattle's roster, holes at tackle, pass rush, linebacker, quarterback, do you think it makes sense for the Seahawks to pay DK what's going to make him happy and feel respected, or do you rebuild and get picks for him? So this is my argument. Rob and I talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday. Um, if you're not paying Russell Wilson, which they're not going to be after this year, you've got your $26 million dead cap hit this season, but he's off the books next year. If you're not going to be paying a quarterback big bucks, then who are you paying your money to? you got to spend your money some. DK Metcalf is a foundational piece. He's 24 years old. He's one of seven receivers in NFL history to have 3,100 receiving yards and 29 receiving touchdowns in his first three years. Jerry Rice and Randy Moss are two other guys that are on that list. I mean, this guy is an elite talent. And if you listen to the interview that he did on Kevin Garnett's podcast, I highly recommend checking that clip out on either the All Seahawks website where I wrote an article or it's on Twitter as well. But he wants to be here. This is, And this is not him just doing, you know, interview speak. DK Metcalf wants to be here. He wants to become a much bigger leader now with Wilson and Wagner being gone. The Seahawks are going to pay him. I truly believe that. Now, I know that there's always the chance that the right offer comes from another team that they have to consider. If they get like two first-round picks and a second and maybe a fifth thrown at them, maybe more than that, then maybe John Schneider thinks about it just because of how steep these receiver prices are right now. But if you're not paying a franchise quarterback, then pay your franchise receiver because you you can have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett both there, and it can make a guy like Drew Locke look a lot better. I mean, if you have an average quarterback, then you obviously want to spruce up your weapons. You don't want to make it worse on that guy. So I think DK Metcalf absolutely deserves that big deal around $25 million, and I think that the Seahawks will pay it because they're going to view him, unlike Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner, guys that were entering their mid-30s, that were trending towards the tail end of their career at the second stage of their career, at least in Wilson's case, and didn't necessarily want to be there in Wilson's case. Wagner wanted to finish his career, but you get my drift. Those two guys are at far different positions in their career. DK Metcalf is going into year four and he is still an ascending talent and they need as many of those as they can get. So I absolutely expect them to pay that toll, whether it's this off season or they wait till next year, they could franchise tag him if that happens, but he is going to be part of their future and needs to be part of their future. 
Last question real quick coming from Albin tweets. Do you believe Pete Carroll's vision to not rebuild this year with the roster as it is right now? I can't see any way we compete. So we looked at the depth chart the last couple of days here on Locked on Seahawks. And obviously I had a lot of players listed on the depth chart that were either reserves or fringe players. That's not what you want your roster to look like. They have holes. They have depth issues. They have the quarterback problem hovering over them. Who's going to replace Bobby Wagner? Who are going to be your tackles? I mean, there are a lot of issues at play here, but I'm going to say this to all of our listeners. It's way too early to know whether this team is going to be competitive or not. And the reason I'm saying that is we don't know what Drew Locke is going to look like. I know we've got film from Denver, but he's going to have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett and Noah Fan, who he's already got a relationship with. He's going to have D. Eskridge hopefully healthy. He's going to have a strong running game, and they're going to try to get that tackle position addressed. What they do in the draft is going to be critical because you have three, you know, three picks in the first 41. If you can hit on a couple of those picks with guys that can come in and play and contribute immediately, and Drew Locke can play the way that the Seahawks seem to believe that he can, and he is embraced by Shane Walter, and he gets this scheme, and it's the perfect fit for him. I and mean, there's a lot of ifs in there, but. Pete Carroll has proven before that he knows how to build teams and he doesn't have very many losing seasons. Like last year was a major asterisk losing 10 games. Like, you know, in the inside that he is burning up about that. And so I've learned never to doubt Pete Carroll. And, and this is kind of a rejuvenation for him going back to his background. We're going to play great defense. We're going to run the ball. And I think some of the things that were going on with Wilson were weighing down the organization, whether the two want to admit that or not. I think that it was. So I'm not saying they're going to be super competitive in the NFC West because right now the roster does not look great, in my opinion. I, I, I definitely see them trending more to top 10 pick than I do towards being a playoff team. But if they draft well, if they're able to address some of these holes that I just mentioned and their quarterback play ends up being sufficient, whether it's Locke or Baker Mayfield or Geno Smith, whoever's under center, if it's a rookie that ends up emerging quickly, if they can have those things happen, then this team still has some very good pieces on both sides of the ball and they could be competitive. And I think that's what Pete Carroll's banking on going into this 2022 season. They haven't torn it down to the studs. So they believe with a few key additions, we can still be a very competitive team. We'll have to see how it plays out. Speaking of roster construction, the Seahawks, they aren't in a great salary cap situation right now. And it's a bit odd saying that because only a week and a half ago, we were starting free agency. And I remember Rob and I had an episode where we were talking about all of the cap space that the Seahawks had at their disposal. They had almost 50 million after they cut Bobby Wagner. He saved them 16 million moving on from him in the final year of his contract. So they had one of the top five or six salary cap totals, the free space available in the entire league going into free agency. But we also made that warning to fans as well. That look how many good players they have that are hitting free agency of their own that they want to keep. Your players like Quandre Dix, who they gave a $40 million contract for three years. To me, it was a great deal, but that's an expensive safety contract. And they had to re-sign several of their other players, such as Rashad Penny getting almost $6 million. He earned that with the way he played in the last six games last season. But those contracts start to add up. And then they spend almost $20 million on Nuosu on a two-year deal. Again, I love the deal. And then Will Disley gets $24 million for three years. That was the one that's debatable. But money dries up quickly when you are re-signing your own players. And they have signed a few guys outside free agency to multi-year deals. 
And so those things stack up. And as it stands right now, the Seahawks, according to over the cap, have less than 16 million in cap room. And that doesn't tell the whole story because teams have to account for rookie contracts and injured players, players that go on injured reserve. And so an amount of that 16 million has to be set aside. They can't just spend all of that on free agents. Their effective cap space right now, this is without Justin Coleman's contract being accounted for at this point. It's going to be lower once that happens. It's 9.4 million. That is not much wiggle room. And by the way, they have openings at both tackle spots. Maybe Jake Curran's your guy at right tackle. Maybe they believe Forsythe can play this year. But they have three tackles currently under contract. They're going to have to make an addition at some point there. They have two quarterbacks in the roster. They want to re-sign Geno Smith maybe. Or maybe Colin Kaepernick plays into this. Baker Mayfield, if he gets cut, that could be a potential possibility. So I just rattled off three positions of need on offense. On defense, you could still need some help at linebacker. You could still need some help outside corner. You could still need another edge guy. I don't think they're going to address all of those things in free agency, or at least with significant money deals. They might get some depth guys that can compete. But nonetheless, $9.4 million isn't much. So that begs the question, what can the Seahawks do if they want to re-sign Dwayne Brown or they want to re-sign Brandon Shell or both of them, just looking at the tackle position, for example, you're not going to be able to do that with $9.4 million in cap space. You're going to have to make some moves. So what can Seattle do? The first thing that they could do is restructure contracts. And I'm just going to tell you right now, John Schneider has always been against that. He's only done it when he's absolutely had to. He doesn't like kicking money down the road. There are a lot of other teams out there that do it regularly. John Schneider and the Seahawks, not one of them. And honestly, the way they set their contracts, really makes it where it isn't worth it to do it most of the time. If they would have kept Russell Wilson and restructured him, you could have made a significant amount of cap space instantly. But he was really the only guy that had a big base salary this year you could do that with. The other players that you maybe could consider restructuring, Tyler Lockett's got a small base salary in the first year of his extension that he signed. You're only going to get $3.8 million back if you restructure. Now, would that help you sign a guy? Sure but it really isn't that big of an add-on to your cap room and you're kicking money down the road. $2.8 million for Gabe Jackson, the veteran guard. That's that's not much. It doesn't really make it worth it. Jamal Adams, his base salary is so low that it's just a little over $700,000 that they would create if they restructured his contract. That is not worth it. So you can kick that out the door. They're not going to restructure and they're not in win-now mode. So I don't think John Schneider would do it anyway. They could extend some contracts. Puna Ford is the one that jumps out to me. Last year of his deal, $10 million cap hit, has been pretty productive. He's only going to be 27 this year. Still a player that may have some room to grow. That is a guy I could see them extending to open up a few million in cap space just by lowering the cap number this year with that extension. So that's a possibility. DK Metcalf, an extension might potentially give you a little wiggle room, depending how they structure it. Obviously, that's going to take a big chunk out of your cap space in future seasons, but they could give themselves a little cap relief. Not a lot, but a little bit by extending him this year if they structure the contract a certain way. But Puna Ford, to me, is the big one. But there's the only options they have. They don't really have any other notable upcoming free agents that have big contracts they're going to be worthwhile doing that with. And so that isn't an option. What it really boils down to is if John Schneider – once cap space, the most traditional way of doing it, cutting players that are not a part of your long-term plans. And they've already done that with players like Dunlap, Hyder, Mayoa. And there's four other names that stand out to me. Chris Carson has 
had so many injuries the last couple of years, and he's a player that I really like, and I think he fits Seattle's offense so well, but he's coming off neck surgery, and I just am skeptical he's going to be able to play. I hope he can because I love watching him play, but I'm skeptical, especially with what has been said by Pete Carroll over the offseason. It sounds like he is, at best, cautiously optimistic they're going to have Chris Carson back. Rashad Penny just got re-signed to a one-year deal. He's probably going to be your starter. I'm going to expect that he's almost a $6 million guy. He is going to be your starter. You could save either $3.6 million cutting Carson now or over $4 million if you cut him after June 1st. So they can open up some salary cap space doing that. You've still got DJ Dallas and Travis Homer on the roster. If you wanted more depth, you could bring back Alex Collins. This is a good running back class. and You've got a bunch of draft picks. You could draft one. So there are options there. I think Chris Carson, that there is a decent likelihood, regardless of his health, that he could end up being somebody that is cut just because of his contract and the fact they gave that money to Rashad Penny. Now, the neck injury is really what hangs over all of this, though. And then on special teams, Jason Myers, has there been a more up and down kicker in the NFL the last four years? I mean, it truly has been a roller coaster. Based on that model, you want to keep him because he's probably going to have a perfect season this year like he did in 2020. But you look at the two other seasons in Seattle, his first year, 82% field goal percentage. That's not very good. Missed four extra points last year, had less than a 75% conversion rate on kicks and missed some extra points. So he was really bad last year. He's got a $5 million cap hit this season. You could save $4 million by cutting him. That's a big chunk of change at kicker. And I know it's a risk bringing in another kicker. It took him a few years to find him, but he really has been very inconsistent. And so I think Myers is a name that could be on the table where they might look at some other veteran kicker options and try to figure out, hey, can we go a different direction at a cheaper price and open up some cap space? Two other players of note here that I could see being cap casualties in the secondary I mentioned last quarter on the outside, Seattle has some depth concerns potentially, but at the slot position after re-signing Justin Coleman, Artie Burns played mostly in the slot last year for Chicago. You've got Marquise Blair coming back from injury. I don't know where Ugo Amadi fits into all of this. And because this is kind of ironic and it's, you know, it's kind of stinks for him. He's played more than 35% of the snaps last two years. So he's going to get tier one of the proven performance escalator this year. And that's going to bump his salary north of $2 million. His cap hit's going to be north of $2 million. Seattle could cut him and open up a couple millions of bucks if they feel like he isn't going to factor into their slot corner competition. I don't expect that's what they're going to do. They don't usually release players on a cheap rookie deal, even if they've got that performance escalator. It's still not a lot of money, but because there's a log jam there, it could make sense to them, and it gives Amadi a chance to latch on somewhere else. I don't know that he's a fit if they're running more man coverage. That's where he has struggled. He is more of a zone coverage corner, can play free safety, so he gives you some depth there behind Quandry Diggs. But I don't know. We'll see. He is a guy that I could see making some sense just because of how the depth chart now looks with the free agent additions that they have made. And last but not least, Nick Ballore. I mentioned at the beginning, and I have to keep going back to my spreadsheet here, but with the signing of Joel E.A. Booneyway, there's suddenly now going to be a logjam at linebacker. And, and Iggy is a good special teams player, and he is seven years younger than Nick Ballore. Ballore has been one of the best for a long time in terms of kick and punt coverage 
and he had that great block opening up Travis Homer for a long touchdown run on a fake punt last year. I mean, he's just a fantastic special teams guy. He's great in the locker room. Fans love him with his sense of humor, and he's just a gritty guy. For him to be an undrafted guy to Central Michigan to have 11 years in the NFL now going into year 12, he's highly respected by everybody in that organization. So I don't know that they're going to be rushing to release him, but at some point he's going to start declining. He's going to be 33 in May. He isn't going to play snaps for you on offense. They're hardly going to use a fullback in Shane Waldron's offense. He gives you that rare flexibility as an insurance linebacker, but you can hope that you get enough depth there, you're not going to need him to play linebacker at this stage of his career. So he is a player you could save more than $2 million cutting, and you could bring back at a cheaper price down the road too if you wanted to. But all four of those names could make some sense to me. The most likely just because of his health is Chris Carson. And it saddens me to say that I hope I'm wrong. I hope that he and Rashad Penny can be that one-two punch we've been wanting to see for several years, and they just haven't been healthy very often at the same time. But with him coming off a neck injury, that is one certainly to watch. And I think Jason Myers, just how big his contract is and how up and down, how erratic his play has been. Pete Carroll has supported him nonstop, and maybe that's going to stay that way. But that would be a contract I'd be looking at. If you need a few million dollars extra to go get you Dwayne Brown back or to bring in a veteran tackle to help with those positions, then you go do it, I think. I think you got to consider at least – those two, and then the other two names I mentioned, Amani and Ballor, could make sense too if you need to save a few million bucks. A few million bucks, and those are guys that aren't necessarily in your long-term plans. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to check out the Locked On Seahawks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, five days a week streaming on YouTube. Coming up on our Blue Friday episode, I'll be joined by Nick Lee. We'll be recapping some of the latest free agent signings for the Seahawks, and we'll be taking another look at several of the players that are still out there on the market, which ones might meet with Seattle's current budget and could be targets here as we enter the next wave of free agency. As always, thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Go Hawks!